Father, our hearts are still singing that you're an awesome God. Our hearts are still rejoicing in the fact that you reign forever and ever. Our hearts are glad to know that you are in control of all things, that you rule all things, that you do all things well, and that anything that comes into our lives comes first through your good hands. Remind ourselves of that now as we come to your word, and we pray that you would help us to see in your word your providential and sovereign ruling, and to see in your word into your very good heart. So come to Ezra, Lord, help us, we pray, to hear with spiritual understanding, and change us, we pray, by your word, in Jesus' name. Amen. Unless you've been in exile or perhaps an immigrant or perhaps a refugee, you've not been forced to leave your home. You've not been forced to leave the place of your birth or the place of your upbringing, the place of your family history and lineage to Consider to migrate to a new land unknown to you, perhaps a new culture, a new language unknown to you. And if you've not been in that situation, you've not had to face one of the first questions that an exile or an immigrant or refugee has to face. Is it better to stay or to go? Will I risk more remaining or departing? It's a difficult question. And it's the first question that recently freed people have to figure it out and answer to. Do we go or do we stay? Just to illustrate this from U.S. history, one of the first questions that sort of rise near the end of slavery and in the aftermath of slavery is, should freed African people be repatriated back to Africa or should they stay in the United States? On the one hand, you had people in the American colonization society who, who argued, let's, let's send as many who would go back to Africa, to places like Liberia and other, other places carved out of the land. But then you had people who argued, no, like a Booker T. Washington, we stay. We root ourselves. We, we grow in industry and community, and we, we work for our part of the pie, so to speak. So then the next question that sort of rises is not the question of do we go or do we stay, but who do we listen to? Who do we follow? Is it the American Colonization Society and their voices or Booker T. Washington? A little bit later, is it Booker T. Washington with his emphasis on industry and bootstrapping, or is it W.B. Du Bois and his emphasis on full inclusion and participation as citizens in the country? Or a little bit later, is it Booker T. Washington or Marcus Garvey? Garvey and his Universal Negro Improvement Association, the Jamaican-born Pan-Africanist leader, uh, saw African-Americans as a nation within a nation. Said we should own our own steamships and newspapers and build a nation. And and yes, if we want, move, move back to Africa or some other place. Do we go or do we stay? Who do we follow? 
I'm convinced that if we're in situations like that, the more pressing question is not do we go or do we stay. The more pressing question is not even who do we follow, which leader and which program. The more pressing question is what's God up to? Can we see God's hand at work? Are we relying on God's hand? In Ezra 7 and 8, two chapters that kind of go together and mark out a a different period in the return of the Jewish exiles back to Jerusalem, uh, six times through these two chapters, there's a little phrase that recurs, the hand of God, the hand of God, the good hand of God. And as these people are thinking about whether or not to return to Jerusalem or to remain in Babylon, or whether or not to follow the leadership of Ezra or to remain under, you know, a, a sort of pagan exile, what this text begs us to see is that beneath the leadership, beneath the decisions, beneath the movement of people is the invisible hand of God ruling and providing and working for his people. And anytime we're in God's hands, we're in the best hands possible. So I'm going to read through Ezra chapter 7, and then we're going to make four points about the hand of God. Number one, the hand of God makes the man of God. The hand of God makes the man of God. That's what we're going to see in Ezra chapter 7, verses 1 to 6. Number two is the hand of God that completes the plan of God. It's the hand of God that completes the plan of God. We'll see that in verses 7 to 10. Then there's the letter from the king that takes up verses 11 down to about verse 26. And this is what we want to see is that it's the hand of God that turns the hearts of kings. It's the hand of God that turns the hearts of kings. And then in verses 27 and 28, we get a kind of doxology from Ezra, a sort of outburst of of praise. And and there we we recognize that it's the hand of God that establishes or ordains praise. We want to see the secret movement of the hand of God in Ezra chapter 7. Look with me beginning in verse 1. Now after this, in the reign of Artaxerxes, king of Persia, Ezra, the son of Sariah, son of Azariah, son of Hilkiah, son of Shalom, son of Zadok, son of Ahitub, son of Amariah, son of Azariah, son of Merioth, son of Zerahiah, son of Uzi, son of Buki, son of Abishua, son of Phinehas, son of Eleazar, son of Aaron, the chief priest. This Ezra went up from Babylonia He was a scribe skilled in the law of Moses that the Lord, the God of Israel, had given. And the king granted him all that he asked, for the hand of the Lord his God was on him. And they went up also to Jerusalem in the seventh year of Artaxerxes the king, some of the people of Israel and some of the priests and Levites, the singers and gatekeepers and the temple servants. And Ezra came to Jerusalem in the fifth month, which was in the seventh year of the king. For on the first day of the first month, he began to go up from Babylonia. And on the first day of the fifth month, he came to Jerusalem. For the good hand of his God was on him. For Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. 
This is a copy of a letter that King Artaxerxes gave to Ezra the priest, the scribe, a man learned in matters of the commandments of the Lord and his statutes for Israel. Artaxerxes, king of kings, to Ezra the priest, the scribe of the law of the God of heaven, peace. And now I make a decree that any one of the people of Israel or their priests or Levites in my kingdom who freely offers to go to Jerusalem may go with you. For you are sent by the king and his seven counselors to make inquiries about Judah and Jerusalem according to the law of your God, which is in your hand. And also to carry the silver and gold that the king and his counselors have freely offered to the God of Israel, whose dwelling is in Jerusalem with all the silver and gold that you shall find in the whole province of Babylonia, and with the freewill offerings of the people and the priests, vowed willingly for the house of their God that is in Jerusalem. With this money, then, you shall with all diligence buy bulls, rams, and lambs, with their grain offerings and their drink offerings, and you shall offer them on the altar of the house of your God that is in Jerusalem. Whatever seems good to you and your brothers to do with the rest of the silver and gold, you may do according to the will of your God. The vessels that have been given you for the service of the house of your God, you shall deliver before the God of Jerusalem. And whatever else is required for the house of your God, which it falls to you to provide, you may provide it out of the king's treasury. And I, Artaxerxes the king, make a decree to all the treasurers in the province beyond the river, Whatever Ezra the priest describe of the law of the God of heaven requires of you, let it be done with all diligence. Up to 100 talents of silver, 100 cores of wheat, 100 baths of wine, 100 baths of oil, and salt without prescribing how much. Whatever is decreed by the God of heaven. Let it be done in full for the house of the God of heaven, lest his wrath be against the realm of the king and his sons. We also notify you that it shall not be lawful to impose tribute, custom, or toll on any one of the priests, the Levites, the singers, the doorkeepers, the temple servants, or other servants of this house of God. And you, Ezra, according to the wisdom of your God that is in your hand, Appoint magistrates and judges who may judge all the people in the province beyond the river. All such as know the laws of your God. And those who do not know them you shall teach. Whoever will not obey the law of your God and the law of the king, let judgment be strictly executed on him, whether for death or for banishment or for confiscation of his goods or for imprisonment. Blessed be the Lord, the God of our fathers, who put such a thing as this into the heart of the king to beautify the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem and who extended to me his steadfast love before the king and his counselors and before all the king's mighty officers. I took courage for the hand of the Lord my God was on me and I gathered leading men from Israel to go up with me. Amen. First thing we want to consider is that the hand of God makes the man of God. Verse 1 begins, it's a kind of fast forward from the action of chapters uh, 5 and 6. Several years into the future now, 
is during the reign of Artaxerxes, king of Darius. Artaxerxes is, or king of Persia, excuse me. Artaxerxes is Darius's son, who succeeds his father to the throne. Verse 7 tells us it is specifically in the seventh year of Artaxerxes the king. So that puts us about 458 BC specifically. And verses 1 to 6 give us a profile of a man named Ezra. He's the man uh, for whom the book is named, but he actually hasn't appeared in the book until this point. And we see four things about Ezra. Number one, we see his family line. You see that being traced in verses 2 to 5. He's from the priestly line of Israel. His ancestry goes all the way back to Aaron, the chief priest, the brother of Moses. Aaron was, I said, the brother of Moses and right there with Moses in the Exodus and in the giving of the law. But you notice there mentioned also as Zadok. He was a faithful priest during the, the reign of King David. And Sariah there, his most recently named relative, the genealogy isn't, isn't exhaustive, uh, it skips some generations, but Sariah was the last high priest before Israel went into exile in Babylon. So Ezra comes from a family with influence. From the start of the nation with Moses and Aaron, to the height of the nation with King David, to the fall of the nation with Sariah, Ezra's people have been right there in influence and, and, and in power, so to speak, among the religious people of Israel. Now, sometimes we read a genealogy like this and we have the vague sense as someone like Ezra has won the lottery. He's from a good family line. He, he has famous ancestors that God used mightily. Humanly speaking, we can sort of tend to think of, of, of that as hitting the jackpot, as a kind of luck that played out. But beloved, luck is a pagan view of history. No, what we have here in truth is that Ezra's ancestry is not a matter of luck, is not a matter of rolling the dice and hitting the jackpot, is not a matter of chance, it's a matter of God's providence. It's a matter of God's sovereign rule in the world and in the nation of Israel. Ezra's family lineage means something, but it means something because God did it, because God worked it out. Because God was in the details making him a descendant of the, the priestly line. Some people might say, well, still, I don't, I don't have this kind of family lineage. I don't, I don't have this kind of advantage. Wasn't born with a silver spoon in my mouth. Well, that's okay. Even in Jesus' family tree in the Gospels, there's a prostitute like Rahab. There's a refugee like Ruth. It's not about who your earthly daddy and mama are. It's who your heavenly father is. And the key question is not, why couldn't I have been born someone else, someplace else? The key question for those who believe God rules through providence is, God, how do you want to use who I am, where I am? Because, beloved, none of our histories are accidents. God is at work and at rule, even in our lineage. But here's the second thing we learn about Ezra. He's an exile too. 
Verse 6 says, this Ezra went up from Babylonia. In other words, despite being able to trace his ancestry back to Aaron, the first chief priest, that didn't keep him from being conquered and sent into exile along with the rest of Israel. Here's the thing about being in exile. Your personal circumstances may be outstanding, but they are still affected and sometimes even determined by what happens to your whole people. Nobody in Babylon said, oh, oh, that's right. That's right. You, you, you Aaron's great, 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 great grandson. We heard about your family. Y'all did some dope things for God. You know what? We're going to conquer everybody else, but we ain't going to conquer you. Nobody said that in Babylon. What fell on Israel fell on Ezra. His vulnerability and his, 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 his was not determined by his personal standing alone, but also by his membership in the exiled people. I think Du Bois understood this better than Washington. And Garvey understood it better than Du Bois that we share sometimes in these macro stories, these, these sort of big events that become defining and shaping. We're reading right now on Thursday nights as people come, a little book called Strong and Weak by Andy Crouch. He told recently a story of a young girl named Abby. She's Chinese. She grew up in the United States. Her family was first-generation immigrants. He tells a story about sitting in a small group as Abby is answering the question about the, the first time you really felt suffering. And Abby happens to name his hometown. He gets kind of excited. He's like, oh, I know that town. And she names this little corner store. He gets excited again because as a high school student, they used to go to that corner store, buy pop, hang out, and all that good stuff. And she tells a story of going into this corner store with her father. She says, up until that point, I'd only ever known my father as this strong, wise man. But my father didn't speak English. So we go into this store and we wanted to make some copies, but my father was struggling with the copier machine, as is the case with many uh, immigrant families. The children are kind of bilingual and, and interpreter. And I asked the storekeeper for help. And the storekeeper blew up in this racist rage, snatched the papers out of my father's hands, tore them to shreds, and stomped on them and told us to get out of his store. So that's the first time the experience of being an immigrant came crashing into the personal story of this little girl, Abby. She had, at that point, been living a life that was in some ways free from the macro story, but the macro story came, came crashing down in a way that, was, that marked her for the rest of her life. See, Ezra, Ezra is from a priestly line, but he's in an exile community in God's providence, and that, that helps determine who he is. In Judaism today, the Holocaust helps shape how the Jewish community sees itself and engages the world. So both secular and re religious Jewish people understand that exile is now fundamental to their identity. Slavery. It's fundamental to the identity of African Americans. Nobody in this room as an African American was a chattel slave in the 1700s and 1800s. And nobody in this room who's an African American lives a life completely independent of that Holocaust. We are part of that community. The immigration experience is fundamental to immigrant communities. You can take a person out of the exile, but you can't take all of the exile out of the person. It shapes you. Here's the thing. 
what we read in Ezra 7 points us beyond Ezra and not to our individual ethnic experiences, though it helps us understand those, but it points us forward to the New Testament church. The New Testament church is in exile in this world. This world is not our home. We are sojourners and pilgrims and pastors through. And this becomes the question, beloved, as Christian people. Is the exile experience fundamental to the Christian church's identity and view of itself? Or are we acting like this world is our home? I'm not convinced the church today sees itself as exiles. And I am convinced that in failing to see that, it, ex- it distorts our view on the world and our mission in it. It makes us too home, at home in the world. Here's the third thing to notice about Ezra. He's skilled in the word of God. See it there in verse 6? He was a scribe skilled in the law of Moses that the Lord God of Israel had given. That word skilled could be translated quick or ready with the word. Ezra knew the word backwards and forwards. He's like Peter Noble. He's just, you know, bleeding the word, right? To grow skilled in something, though, you have to be devoted to it. You have, to, you have to be disciplined about it. You have to, as my coaches in high school used to say, you have to want it. They never told you what it was, but you had to want it, right? So in practice, you had to practice like you wanted it, right? In the game, you had to leave it all on the floor like you wanted it. Every loose ball you had to go after like you wanted it. They were trying to sort of inculcate a heart, a passion, a drive, a desire, a willingness to do what it took to win, and I think about Ezra here described as being skilled in the word of God. I just, if you allow me a little sanctified imagination, I imagine he unrolls the scroll and he starts to dig in the scroll and he hears the Holy Spirit saying, you want it? You got to act like you want it. You got to dig in it like you want it. You got to leave it all on the parchment like you want it. And Ezra did. That became his reputation. Skilled with the word of God. The law of the Lord that was given. We'll come back to that notion of given. Here's the fourth thing about Ezra. It's probably the wisdom that Ezra gained from the word of God that created a situation of favor with the king of Babylon. See there, verse 6 says, And the king granted him all that he asked. Proverbs twenty two twenty nine says, Do you see a man skillful in his work? He will stand before kings. He will not stand before obscure men. I think the Proverbs is telling us there, whatever is our vocation and our calling, in this case, Ezra was a scribe, a teacher of God's word, a lawyer, so to speak, with God's word. Whatever is our skill or our calling, if we are dedicated to it and give ourselves to it and excel in it, it says your gifts will make room for you. Make room for you before kings. And that was the case with Ezra. I mean, essentially, this king of the largest empire in the world at the time gives Ezra, the scribe, a blank check. Whatever you ask, it's yours. Reminds you of Joseph in Pharaoh's house, doesn't it? It's the number two in Egypt. He's in exile, but he's attained considerable political favor and influence. Now, Where does such a man come from? How are they made? Are they self-made? 
They pull themselves up by their bootstraps. Or is it that clothes make the man? He was a particularly dashing dresser. Where does such a man come from? Verse 7 gives us the answer. For the hand of the Lord his God was on him. I I don't know if you believe in self-made men or not, but I don't. I, I don't believe people bootstrap their way to greatness all in their own strength. I don't believe that by sheer determination, people overcome the odds to go from rags to riches. Let me be clear. I do believe in hard work, and we have a responsibility to work hard whether we're exiles or free. But I believe it's the hand of God that makes the man of God. I believe that anyone who thinks they got something only by their effort, I believe they're robbing God of glory. I believe they're stealing glory for God. They may have worked hard, but there are millions and millions and millions of people who work hard every day and achieve no greatness of note. There there are millions and millions of people who do that. There are people working in sweatshops in Asia and in the fishing slave trades of Nigeria, in the slums of uh, India, on farms in America, and they're not great by any measure. It's not for lack of hard work. It's the hand of God that makes the man of God. Ezra had great lineage, but he was still sent to exile. And though he was in exile, he, he didn't, it didn't stop him from loving the word of God. And that, that made a place for him before kings, but it was all because the favor and blessing and kindness of God rested on him. Because God kept his hand on him. See, only the hand of God makes you great in the things of God. We have to seek that hand of blessing if we want to do anything significant for God's glory. I, I hope I never forget the first time I had the privilege of, of, of speaking with uh, Alistair Begg at his, his Basics Conference. We go there as the first time I was at the church there in Cleveland, and we're hanging out the speakers beforehand, and he's showing us around the church, and, and we're just talking as pastors do. And, and we go into this little room, and I'm asking him questions about his elders and questions about how they do this, how they do that. And uh, he takes us in a room where they have their elders meetings, and he says, amen, every week in this room, elders meet and pray, and there's one thing we pray almost every week without fail, Lord, do not remove your hand of blessing from us. If God withdraws his hands, we can't do nothing. I pray that that same heart would, would grip all God's people because it's the hand of God that makes the man of God. The second thing that we want to see in this text is that it's the hand of God that completes the plan of God. So what we see in verses 7 to 10. 7 to 10 is kind of a, a quick summary of Ezra's return to Jerusalem. It's really summarizing the events of, of chapters 7 and 8 together. He returned, notice, with some of the people of Israel and some of the priests and Levites, the singers and gatekeepers and the temple servants. We'll see how all those people join with him in chapter 8, but, but here we have the summary. Verses 8 and 9 teach us that it took Ezra four months to make this journey from Babylonia to Jerusalem. He left on the first day of the first month and arrived on the first day of the fifth month. And this was no short walk. The direct distance between Jerusalem and Babylonia was, was about 500 miles. But because of the the river Euphrates, which they had to travel around at points, scholars say this was closer to a 900-mile trip. In the ancient world with no airplanes and no cars, that's a journey. That's a journey. How did they make that trip? 
Well, from the start, Ezra wants us to know why the journey was successful. It was, notice there, because the good hand this time, the good hand of his God was on him. It's the hand of God that completes the plan of God. God had prophesied over 100 years earlier that he was going to bring his people back from the exile into Jerusalem and reestablish worship in Jerusalem. He had announced that plan over a century beforehand, and now his hand is bringing it to pass. And I love Ezra. He doesn't take credit for the journey. He doesn't chalk it up to his superior skill with leading. He doesn't claim it was because he navigated the terrain so well. He doesn't get to Jerusalem and say, yeah, man, we saved like an hour and 15 minutes, man. I came up to I-95, you know, straight up. Didn't even stop for directions. They were able to make the trip because of God's good hand. It was on him. God blessed them. God worked in their journey to get them where he wanted them to be. But now verse 10, notice it, gives us the reason God's hand was on Ezra in this trip. For Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. My God, I pray that when we are dead and gone, that people will remember us with a verse like this. That's one of the most beautiful verses in the Bible. Ezra had set his heart to study the law of God and to do it and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. Notice three things about Ezra's heart. You might call this the SOS of the Bible. Number one, study. He's set to study the word. Ezra chose to dig into the word, to to focus his mind on the commandments of God. A a heart set to study is a heart fully devoted. Study takes work. It's a commitment. We we won't do it if we're faint-hearted or fickle or double-minded. And isn't that the case? Isn't it the case that many of our dry spells and our struggles to study God's word really result from half-heartedness? Our hearts aren't fixed and focused to dig in. They're somewhere else. I mean, may Ezra's example be an example for us. If we need a devoted heart, may we seek it from God in prayer and resolve to be fully immersed in the book. That's the S. Notice the O. He set to obey the words. Ezra's not just an academic. Ezra's not a Calvinist. Not just getting all this theology and then arguing about it. His study of the word is not merely intellectual. Ezra studies the word so that he can do or obey the word. God ain't just talking to be talking. God is speaking in his word the things that give us life and the things that are meant to direct our lives. God is trying to get our attention and and to order our steps, and he does it by his word. And if we're going to obey God's word, we've got to fix our hearts to obey. We don't drift toward obedience. You don't slip into obedience. You've got to choose that. You've got to desire that. Ezra doesn't want to be like the man in James 1. 
The man who looks into the mirror of God's word, sees himself, turns away and forgets what he saw. As a result, to be a doer of God's word, not merely a studier of it. Isn't it also the case that sometimes, especially if sin and the flesh have gotten influence on us, isn't it the case that sometimes we don't want to read the word because we don't want to obey the word? Haven't you had some passages in the Bible or maybe even whole books in the Bible? You're like, I ain't going to study that right now. Now I'm going to go over here where this thing I'm dealing with ain't spoken about. Let the Bible fall open. I'm going to read whatever it falls open to. Oh, no, I don't like that part. Let, me, let, me, let it fall open again. See, sometimes a commitment to disobedience keeps us from the Word. We don't label it as such, but sometimes our problem is not understanding. Our problem is unwillingness to obey what's in there. Ezra teaches us that we should not only resolve to study the Scripture, but also to obey it. Or as James puts it in James 1 again, verse 22 and 25, but be doers of the Word, not hearers only, deceiving yourself. You realize that you can hear God's Word at the same time be deceiving yourself? Because with the hearing, there's supposed to be a doing. And if we think we can hear it and not do it without accountability, we are deceiving ourselves. Be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. The, the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. And I think that's the New Testament equivalent of what we're reading in Ezra 7 verse 10. Ezra was a doer, and he's blessed in his doing. Notice the third thing, the second S, S-O-S. Now he sets to spread the word and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. Ezra's concern for God's word didn't stop with himself. He wanted the word to also reach the people and for the people to learn to live by God's word. He wanted the people to know their God and love their God and serve their God through obedience. In a sense, Ezra described served as a kind of missionary to his people. Now, the, the thing about this is if for, for the people in Israel to hear and know and obey God's word, Ezra's got to move from where he's at. That ain't going to happen if he stays in Babylon. Ain't, ain't no internet, ain't no telephones, ain't no printing press. For the word to reach the people, Ezra has to go to the people. If he wants them to feed on God's word, he's got to put the food where they can access it. My, my lovely wife likes to keep fruit in the house for us to eat. But whether or not it gets eaten depends on where, the, where it gets placed. If she puts it on the ledge over the sink, it don't get eaten. She puts it on the table in the breakfast nook, nobody touches it. Puts it on the dining room table in the dining room, everybody just keeps walking by it. You know, it just, it goes bad. Because it looks like decoration to us in those places. But if she puts it on the island in the kitchen where everybody stops and paws and talks and all that good stuff, we nibble on it and pull on it and it just begins to disappear. We, we actually eat it. You got to put it where we going to get it. It's the same with the Word of God. You got to put it where people are going to get it. You have to take it to folks. If folks are not inclined to the Word, if folks are not believers, it doesn't matter that we put signs outside saying, hey, we're a church. A few people come in, praise God. 
But the bulk of folk, we actually got to go move the fruit to where they're at and make the word available to them where they're at. And that's what Ezra does here. Now, what's striking is that God's word is at the center of Ezra's ministry because God's word is at the center of Ezra's heart. So let me teach you something about being a member and thinking about churches and evaluating your churches. If it appears that the word of God is not central to the ministry you're a part of, ARC or any other church, you have reason to suspect that it's losing its centrality in the heart of your leaders. If the word is central to Pastor T's heart, Pastor D's heart, Pastor G's heart, if the word is central to our deaconesses and our deacons, if the word is central to the leadership of the church, then guess what we're going to give the most attention to? The word. If that starts to get substituted with something else, if that starts to sort of vanish away and to shrink, if the sermons go from however long they are, you know, as brief as they are, to half that time, maybe that's a good thing. But if you're getting less and less word, something's happening with my heart. Something's happening with the leadership's heart that allows that. And as the people of God, the one thing you should demand from your leaders is that they give you the word, line upon line, precept upon precept. Don't bring other demands. I mean, something may be fine, but don't make other demands more important than your soul and the teaching of God's word. You tracking with me? So this is at the center of Ezra's ministry because it's at the center of his heart. The other thing I want to see from this passage here is never underestimate how much God wants his people to know his word. God is fully prepared to go through great lengths in placing his hand on those who commit to making the word known and doing things in their lives. Because Ezra's heart was to study, obey, and spread the word of God, God's hand was on Ezra to move him 900 miles and root him somewhere else so his people would have the word. Now, this reveals something wonderful about the Lord. In one sense, it's God's hand that raises Ezra up. It's God's hand that makes the man of God. That's what we're considering verses 1 to 6. If God had not made Ezra a descendant of Aaron, Ezra wouldn't have been a scribe. He wouldn't have been in that tribal society able to just sort of say, hey, I'm going to be a scribe one day. He would have been whatever his father was. That's how tribal societies work. But God has made him a scribe. He's made him quick with the word. He's raised him up in this time and given him favor with the king. God's hand has made the man. God's hand has made Ezra who he is. But at the same time, Ezra's faithfulness to God's word prompts God to bless Ezra even more. Here's how I want to put this. I want you to see this. God makes us who he wants us to be, then blesses us for being who he made us to be. God makes us who he wants us to be, then blesses us for being who he made us to be. That's a good God. That's a generous God. This is why we should pray like Augustine, Lord, command what you will and grant what you command. That's precisely what he does with Ezra here. And that's what he does with all his children. So we are being conformed to the image and likeness of Christ. We are being made who God wants us to be. And as we make progress in that, God's hand of blessing is on us to finish the work that he began and to provide us everything we need for life and godliness. 
goodness. God is so good. So, are you dull to God's word right now? Then pray that God would place his hand of blessing on you and grant you a heart resolved to study the scriptures. Pray for your daily study of the word. Do you have questions about God's word? Do not be committed to questioning God's word. Be committed to receiving it. I said we come back to this. Notice what was said of Ezra earlier. Ezra was a scribe skilled in the law of Moses that the Lord, the God of Israel, had given. In other words, Ezra accepted that the scriptures were given by God, that they were inspired, that God is the author of the word. The scripture was not the product of the mind of men. It wasn't created by man. It was given by God's good hand of blessing. So it's meant to be received. If somebody gives you something, you should receive it. No matter how many of you parents have to do this, my mom used to have to do this with me. I'd be around somewhere, she'd be talking to some of her friends, her adult friends, I'm a little kid, kind of shy, and all that good stuff, and they start trying to talk to me, and maybe, you know, old guy reaching to his pocket, give me a couple dollars, hand out a couple dollars, and I'd be hiding behind her legs. She'd be like, boy, he's giving you something, take it, take it, receive it, receive it. I actually had to learn to receive from people. And God's word is like that. Here's this mighty, omnipotent, all-wise God bowing down to his children to hand him the gift of his word. And we're meant to take it, receive it, accept it for what it is. And this is what the Apostle Paul commended about the church in Thessalonica. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13. Paul says there, we also thank God constantly for this, that when you receive the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as the word of men, but as it really is the word of God. The striking thing about the Thessalonians, they go, ooh, that sounds like that came from God. I want to accept this as God's word, not the word of men. So if you've got questions, let me encourage you, accept the word and doubt your doubts. Do not accept your doubts and reject the word. Do not assume the best about your questions while assuming the worst about the Bible. Assume the best about the Bible and be suspicious of unbelieving, unaccepting questions. See, very often the plan to disobey comes masquerading as questions about the Scripture. No, the Word of God is forever settled in heaven. Let's receive it for what it really is, the Word of God, and do what He calls us there. Do you want to teach others the Word of God? Pray for opportunity and go where the Lord sends you. If we love God's Word, if we're willing to sacrifice to spread it, that's, that's really, beloved, evidence that God's hand is on us. Ezra left Babylon 900 miles to Jerusalem so that he could bring God's Word to God's people. And for obeying that call, God's hand set upon him. I believe the same is true of those who've moved to Anacostia in order to get the gospel out. I believe God's hand is on us and he will bless us as we keep our hearts set to study, obey, and spread. Those of you who have moved in, those of you who have have partnered, who drive in, who make this community a part of your life and your mission, 
I, I want to encourage you to do that, knowing that people don't just move to take the word of God somewhere unless God has stirred them by his hand. And if his hand is with us, who can be against us? The third thing we want to observe in this text. The hand of God turns the heart of kings. That's what we see in verses 11 to 28. This is the letter that Artaxerxes gave to Ezra. The letter included three sections, really, with with two decrees, two laws, uh, and a charge to Ezra. The first decree is there in verses 13 to 20. See what it says there, verse 13. He allows any Jewish person who wishes to return to Jerusalem to do so freely. Must be voluntary, but, but everyone is free if they wish. This will be the third, I think, major return of exiles back to Jerusalem since the Babylonian captivity. Verses 14 to 20 spell out Ezra's mission. In verse 14, Ezra is to check on the progress of Jerusalem according to the law of God. He's to take the spiritual measure of Israel's progress. Verses 15 to 18, Ezra is to take the silver and the gold of the king, the the counselors and the people in order to make offerings in the temple once he gets to Jerusalem. With the money, he's to buy offerings or animals for the offerings. According to verse 18 and verse 20, whatever's left over, he's to use as he sees fit to to bless the work of the temple and and the people of God. It's a remarkable outpouring of generosity. It's amazing, isn't it, how often when God's people are conquered and leave their, their conquered captivity, how often they plunder the nation as they leave. It's precisely what happens in Israel, in the Exodus. It's happening here with Babylon in the return of the exiles. It's just effusive generosity in this, in this law here that the exiles are free to return. And guess what? The state is going to sponsor their return. We know that because of the second decree. Artaxerxes passes a tax bill, verses 21 to 24. Not only does the king send a voluntary offering with Ezra, he also decrees that his treasures, treasuries beyond the river, that's the area where Jerusalem is, that it, that it give Ezra whatever he needs from the royal treasury. You see that there in verses 21 and 22? Verse 23, again, amounts to a, a blank check to Ezra. This decree or law, notice now, carries with it a sense of the pagan king's concern about God's judgment. Verse 23, lest his wrath be against the realm of the king and his sons. Ezra's had a tremendous witnessing influence on this king. Verse 24 prohibits the the treasury from taxing the priests and the Levites. This this would have been an enormous blessing because you recall the Levites didn't have any inheritance of their own. And and being freed from the taxes really allowed them to minister in the temple and to the people as God had designed. If either there was no provision for them or they were taxed, it, it could cripple the ministry the king is trying to support. So he sends Ezra back to to check on things, and he passes a a tax bill, so to speak, to free them from taxes and to raise funds to support the offerings back in Jerusalem. And he does so in the fear of God. And notice in the, the third decree, verses 25 and 26, the king now turns directly and addresses Ezra personally. 
And he charges Ezra with appointing judges and magistrates to administer the affairs of the people according to God's word throughout the region. Now that's striking. He doesn't say go there and represent Babylonian law. He says go there and establish judges and rulers according to God's word. So there's not only the platforming, if you will, of Ezra, but there is the, the, the greater platforming of God's word. And we won't be surprised when we see revival break out uh, a couple chapters later. If Ezra can't find capable judges and magistrates, then he's to, he's to train people in God's word to teach and to apply God's word as judges. So here is this kind of um, charter, if you will, for Bible colleges in, back in Jerusalem. And then the king adds capital punishment. Do you see that there? To anyone who disobeys God's word. According to the word, those who break God's law shall face either death, banishment, confiscation of property, or imprisonment. These are sweeping reforms for for people who were once captives and, and exiles. They, they come at the hand of an unexpected king. In a shadowy way, Artaxerxes here points us forward to another unexpected king, the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord provides all we need to worship God in spirit and in truth. He does not give us silver and gold, but something more precious. Does not require the sacrifice of bulls and goats. Instead, on the cross, the Lord Jesus Christ sheds his own blood. He becomes the sacrifice, the perfect sacrifice, which removes the sins of the world. He becomes the only means now of offering sacrifice that is pleasing to God. So that anyone who has faith in the Lord Jesus Christ is not only forgiven, but reconciled to God have no reason to fear God's wrath. They are free from judgment and free to love and serve God with a willing and glad and obedient heart. The Lord rises from the grave three days later for our justification and so that we too would have victory over the, the grave through faith in him. And if that wasn't enough, he sends his spirit to us to comfort us and seal us and keep us and empower us until the day of our redemption so that now we have whatever we need for life and godliness through faith in Christ. Though the Lord came to give life, all those who reject his word shall suffer all the penalties we see here. They will be imprisoned by their sin. They will ultimately have their goods and life confiscated in judgment. They will be banished from God's presence and grace. And they will die the second death, which is eternal judgment in hell. See, ultimately, we're not looking for a human king to deliver us. When in verse 12, Artaxerxes describes himself as king of kings, he's claiming too much for himself. The Lord Jesus is King of kings and Lord of lords. The one we're looking to deliver us is, is in fact God's only son. He's the one who's provided all that we need. 
The Father has sent his Son, the King of kings, to rescue us from exile and sin and a fallen world. And all those who come to faith or, or come to Jesus by faith will receive reward and blessing and protection in eternal life. If you're here this morning and you've never repented of your sins and trusted in Christ, we like nothing more than to talk with you from God's Word about how you can do that, how God would give you new life with Him. Which brings us to our final point. The hand of the Lord establishes praise. See there in verses 27 and 28, Ezra recounts this letter from the king. It's a tremendous letter. And it provokes something in Ezra. He says in verse 27, Blessed be the Lord, the God of our fathers, who put such a thing as this into the heart of the king to beautify the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem and who extended to me his steadfast love before the king and his counselors and before all the king's mighty officers. I took courage for the hand of the Lord my God was on me and I gathered leading men from Israel to go up with me. This is how the chapter ends. I think what we're meant to see throughout the book of Ezra up until this point is what Proverbs 21 1 tells us, that the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He directs it wherever he wills. We saw him do that in chapter 1 with Cyrus. We saw him do that in chapter 5 with Darius. Now we're seeing the God, seeing God direct the heart of the king in chapter 7 with Artaxerxes. Over and over and over again, if you're in exile under the rule of others, this book is meant to encourage you to understand that God rules the one who rules you. That God is sovereign. That God turns hearts. That God can make otherwise disinterested, even oppositional political foes do you the biggest favors in worshiping him and reconstituting the people of God. He turns the hearts of kings wherever he wills. And, and whenever favor is shown by a secular king to God's holy people, you can be sure it was God's hand that did that. That's what Ezra says here, I think with a sense of awe. Blessed be the Lord, the God of our fathers, who put such a thing as this into the heart of the king to beautify the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem. And then I think Ezra stands there amazed and staggered when he writes in verse 28, who extended to me his steadfast love before the king and his counselors. Now, I love this because Ezra is saying the favor that I received from the king and his counselors, that wasn't just their favor. That was God's love to me. I love this because it just challenges me to think about ordinary human interactions and whether or not the love of God is coming through them. This is unexpected that this pagan king would be so generous to the people of Israel and rebuild the temple, and, and Ezra is rocked by it. Ezra is caused to praise God. We can be thankful, beloved, for secular leaders who do what is right. Immediately after taking office, President Trump re-implemented the so-called Mexico City policy. That's a policy that forbids federal funds to NGOs in other countries that perform abortions. That was right and good. Not quite two years into his administration, President Trump, working with many folks across the aisle, signed the First Step Act. The First Step Act is just that, a first step in undoing the constellation of policies that has given us mass incarceration. That was right. 
Whenever secular governments uphold righteousness, God's people should rejoice. It's a cause for praise. However, while we are thankful for such leaders, the praise belongs to God. Notice what Ezra says. Pay careful attention to what he says in verse 27. He doesn't say, blessed be Artaxerxes. Artaxerxes ain't really mentioned in 27 and 28. He says, blessed be the Lord, because it was the Lord's hand that was at work through Artaxerxes. The one who receives praise, the one who receives worship is not the human king. It's not the human ruler. It's the God who rules all things. This is important because misdirected praise can get us lost. Christians lose their way anytime we bless the secular leader rather than God. That's misdirected praise. Misdirected goals can also get us lost. When Christians seek wins for their political party rather than wins for the kingdom of God, and when they confuse the two as if a win for their political party is a win for the kingdom of God, we've lost our way. And misdirected interests interests can cause us to lose our way. If we accept personal, individual privilege and favor from secular leaders and forget the spiritual collective needs of God's people, then we've lost our way. What I love about Ezra is that he didn't sell out Israel so he could keep having it good in Babylon. King says, whatever you want, it's yours. Ezra's like, let me go make sure my people worship it according to the word of God. Don't give me a bigger house in Babylon. Don't give me more servants. Don't don't give me more employees or whatever. Ezra's like, nope, I'm going to lay all that down, take a 900-mile walk over four months, and make sure that the Word of God is actually directing the affairs of the people of God. He uses favor with the king to get favor onto the people. See, the great danger to large pockets of the Christian church in America is spiritual misdirection. It's aligning ourselves with kings other than Christ, with parties rather than kingdom, with self-interest rather than church building. All across the political spectrum, there's danger of losing our way. Rather than keeping our eye on the hand of God, we're in danger of focusing on the hand of politicians. We have need of an aggressive return to studying the book, obeying the book, and spreading the book so that God's people are not lost as we engage the world around us. May the hand of our God be on us to praise him through all that we do. And may the hand of our God be on us to keep us from distraction and to keep us from confusion. We may be sure as God's holy people, that his hand is on us. May we be encouraged to live that way. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for Ezra. And we thank you for the exiles. And we thank you for their return to Jerusalem. And we thank you for how all of this points us not ultimately backwards to a once dilapidated temple in a crumbling city, but it points us forward to a new city, to a a new kingdom where there is no temple because you, God, and the Lamb 
are at the center and are the temple of that place where we have been built together as living stones to become a temple in whom you live. We thank you for how you are reminding us, just as you did ancient Israel, that your hand is with us, that you are making us who you wish us to be, that you will complete your plans in us and through us and for us, and that you will, if you need to, turn the hearts of kings. And in the end, you'll get all the praise. Help us to be careful to praise you alone, to give you all the glory, even as we thank you for the ways in which you use our leaders and the ways in which you use even secular means. Father, we we feel ourselves to be sojourners, to be pilgrims, to be exiles, traveling through this world, and we feel ourselves to be fighting for things for your kingdom. Grant us grace. Grant us grace, O Lord, to win souls for your namesake and to build your church. In Jesus' name, amen.